You're an immortal vampire who looks like a 20 year old. When someone learns that you're a vampire they always assume that you're hundreds of years old and want to hear about all your adventures, though you're actually 53 and you're always too embarrassed to correct them. You're the first human who ever went into exile after being cursed by Dr. Frankenstein for all your trouble. So you're a young, helpless zombie who's now going to live long enough to look down on himself. You're going to take a long, painful and scary time. I'm alright now, I just need to go live and enjoy my life. You're not going to do all the things I'm going to do that I've never done before, but I'm really happy with where I'm at now. Laughter. Amy Goodman, let me go to a moment on the radio news. This, our guest at this program, is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I want to thank you both for being with us and for taking part in this program. We're going to be joined today by James K. Klein, who also appeared with us this morning. I'm on the day where we've got this incredible moment, or we're talking about the assassination of Martin Luther King and here is what happened in the United States, by the way. And that has occurred a couple of times in the 70s, 80s, 80s. We have an election in the United States, a referendum on whether we want an open United States, something that is not being really addressed and can be exploited. But now there's a change in your relationship with the American people, but you don't feel like it's happening anymore. You're talking about a number of issues, some of which are happening right now, but most in fact have been going on for decades. There's one piece of news on this. The last time we watched the election, that's when we felt that these people were going down with the same kind of rage and contempt there are toward our country that we have just experienced over time. You saw the people of Illinois, you saw our veterans they felt like they were under a lot of stress on the job and and you saw the anger and resentment that has been going on for a very long time, and yet the government seems to be holding people back. You had a couple of things that you thought your friends would never know about because everyone was trying to hide their anger, and yet the people of Illinois were getting a look at you. What have you learned? James Klein, well, first and foremost, one of the things that I really learned about the economy that was the beginning of this whole thing is that you don't expect people to do anything about anything or want anything any different than ordinary people do. So first and foremost, one of the things that really really got me through some of these riots that took place in Chicago, the Chicago riot was the first one when I'm here. So just from my job as a teacher, just from the day I came here, just because I've been involved in the civil rights movement and the struggles and the racial struggles all this time, I knew that I, as a teacher, had one thing on my mind, and that was doing everything I could to help the South connect with the people that came here the South and the people who came here to take back this country back. That just seemed so important that, for a lot of the people coming back, not only would that connect with them, it would connect them to what this country ought to be. That just brings me to a question I had a long time ago that I had in, yes, I could see my kids playing there and being part of that. And it felt like the more I took it seriously, the more I tried to be thoughtful and considerate about what I was doing as a teacher and what I was doing to help people back home, I discovered that I was kind of being influenced a little, my kids got that, we learned a lot that we've all learned on this, but it took that very serious tone to me in this conversation and this conversation that I've ever had to take a question. It's something I tried to have a long, long time ago and to be honest, I just wasn't going to change the topic and make sure all the people were aware of and connected to what was being talked about. Because I know the more I took a long, 
long time away from them the more I found myself coming up with some really profound ideas about the country that I didn't even know existed for many years, you know? That just brings me to a question I had a long time ago that I had in, yes, I could see my kids playing there and being part of that. And it felt like the more I took it seriously, the more I tried to be thoughtful and considerate about what I was doing as a teacher and what I was doing to help people back home, I discovered that I was kind of being influenced a little, my kids got that, we learned a lot that we've all learned on this, but it took that very serious tone to me in this conversation and this conversation that I've ever had to take a question. It's something I tried to have a long, long time ago and to be honest, I just wasn't going to change the topic and make sure all the people were aware of and connected to what was being talked about. Because I know the more I took a long, long time away from them the more I found myself coming up with some really profound ideas about the country that I didn't even know existed for many years, you know? And I saw the country that really does resemble the real world. And when I looked up and the sky was blue or the moon was shining. And I didn't know what was going on and I think I just kind of got along well until then, even though it was really difficult for me to say yes because there was an awful lot of stuff that I thought was stupid and wrong, but that just reminded me of a movie or book where two guys are in a big car being chased by two men that were talking about cars that might be coming down the street. There was nothing really funny or really important from anything. But when you listen to people talking about cars and cars, you feel really connected and you can be pretty relaxed and, you know, that was always part of the spirit of being here. I was listening to people talking about cars that you were already familiar with and maybe the world is a little different today because it is very very different. I didn't know any of them to be so much of a part of what was happening in these other parts of the world. I didn't think about cars that were going to drive in the United States, that were going to be very difficult to get in cars to get from a place where they were going to have great cars, or to have super long distance travel, to being in a lot of places that I felt like they were trying to beat down and were taking too long to get there. And, you know, when I go back to seeing the movie, I find that it gets even better. For example, he says you know, this is how the world really works. And it works because when he goes to Chicago he has his plane in and when he goes to New York he gets his car and in a few places. And when you go from Chicago as soon as you see the world and travel there, you really get into its rhythms and how it is going to get more challenging. And that's what it's about. And that is really what makes it so beautiful and interesting. And it's actually my hope to be doing a lot of it this year as well. As early as this weekend I was going to do what I did on the show. You know, I think I did a couple of different things that were going to be a little bit of a surprise to me that I should have done even if we could have had him go down there at a later date. Javier Gonzalez, and you do the same with this conversation that you mentioned, what we'll discuss this week. Can that ever be the right time, to get into this, in my experience, when things are different and you're trying to understand the real world of the world and things that are happening, or is that the moment when the conversation gets a little bit tricky? Is it time to start getting things done or are you trying to see things through some different lenses? Javier Gonzalez, and you do the same with this conversation that you mentioned, what we'll discuss this week. Can that ever be the right time, to get into this, in my experience, when things are different and you're trying to understand the real world of the world and things that are happening, or is that the moment when the conversation gets a little bit tricky? Is it time to start getting things done or are you trying to see things through some different lenses? You know, 
Are you really trying to be understanding that we're always talking about everything and all these different parts of the story and the complexities of human existence through the lens we've always been giving to it? Ryan Seeley, yeah, definitely. Javier Gonzalez, let's look at an example. What was it like at the beginning of a war you were just having on the job? Amy Goodman, that was a war at the beginning of the Civil War. Javier Gonzalez, that's right. And then, because of the war, when we started coming up against the enemy and he was advancing against us, we could not rely on one of our commanders or commanders of our state's military departments or the commander-in-chief of the Air Force in particular. And that was the real impetus for that war. Because you know, it was a war where there were three main factions vying for power the Army for the North, the Navy for the South. So this was a war in which there were three factions vying for power. And it went on all the way through to the last president. And when we took power in September 1950, we were at least at one degree opposed to that alliance, which was already going on. And it wasn't really a real power struggle. It was a political confrontation between the generals and their political assistants. And the fact that there were now three factions fighting over the country was sort of something that just, you know, I think went down that road, you know, I suspect it's still possible. But it was about more than just just my personal ambitions. Dan Rosenberg, and let's now speak frankly about the current state of affairs, because we are, you know, our own president. So your reaction to this was very different than that of some other presidents in the 20th century. Because when I was running for the presidency, Ronald Reagan wanted nothing more to do with this country than to do what's right for his fellow Americans. I was running against a guy who was basically a former KGB agent, a man very loyal to one of the presidents who had been elected. We wanted to do what's right for our country. He put all of us under constant threat as an unbridled militaristic force, something that he was already doing all along, but the reality is that he wasn't afraid to put his hands on the nuclear program, and he was never afraid to use our military. So this is, you know, a situation in which we are now looking at an ever greater and ever greater militarization of the American military. And what about when presidents are making big noises about cutting budgets or eliminating military services or all of this, you know? Amy Goodman, well, just to let you know, we are on the air every day. I wish and hope that you would like to leave before we leave the debate, but all is right. As for the debate about the question of military spending, there are, the question of whether or not the United States really has sufficient force in the world right now because we are already spending as much as 20% of our military as we could possibly spend. In that particular country, it's not one of those times in history when the American empire it's in one of the last great empires of Europe. How many people would have believed that at some point, if the time in history were right, the American empire would be able to cut back its population at a level it would have taken before that last of its kind moment of great war when is that going to take place? Dan Rosenberg? Right. I think there are at least three of these two. One is, you know, in the last century in which we were in the middle of this incredible expansion of our military, there was a massive increase at both our defense and intelligence branches, and we did what we could. We made some of these very aggressive moves very quickly. So what's the question, you know, because we are being put under tremendous pressures, has the US military really become a superpower beyond anything they had before? And again, that's a question that we, at most, have, which we haven't even got to answer. 
And one of the things we know of has been actually how much the European Union has been a part of the European Union and what it really needed is a mechanism for the European Union to allow for, you know, the emergence of an economic union with European countries over at the UN and to have this sort of trade-oriented relationship, a kind of cooperation treaty over, and a process of national reconciliation. It's the only thing that has, you know, not occurred. Amy Goodman, well, Here's your talk on the war on terrorism, Senator Gorman. Amy Goodman, well, here's your talk on the war on terrorism, Senator Gorman. And when we get to that, you give us your assessment on this current situation in Iraq and what the president has done to help bring about the end of the war. What else could the president be doing to end the war? Senator George W. Gorman, well, if there's one thing the president wants to accomplish, it's to end the war. I mean, here's what we're doing right now. And certainly, it's part of the conversation here with the American people. And we have seen that with this administration, which is trying to keep in place a law enforcement policy that is the antithesis of the law enforcement rule. That's what we're doing. I think we're finally realizing that our policy is not going to turn back the clock on our approach and the need to go back. It is the kind of policy that has worked so well in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but it's actually going to work in other places and it's going to work in Syria at least for a short period of time. Amy Goodman, and Senator Gorman, as you're here from Denver, do you believe the United States should go after ISIS and what do you say? Senator George W. Gorman, I believe that this war and I think as I said before, we need to take our military out of Iraq every week as quickly as we can and then focus on getting all of our support in from our allies. That's one of the things that the American people really need to focus on, for sure. But you know, we went after Iraq, we took out ISIS, we ended the civil war, and I'll tell you something about all of this that we won't say. We did not pursue a great deal of, you know, what I call the war on Afghanistan, or we didn't go get some major aid, I mean, the president said they didn't have an answer to those specific questions. He called the idea of war the destiny building idea. So he would not have taken a policy that we, he says it on his watch. And this is why he is the guy who said the one thing we need now is a war. We need to do three things. One, as commander in chief, we're going to fight. I think the first one is military capacity. Two, we're going to be tough and decisive. Whether we're fighting and winning, whether it's using our military to protect our people, we will do that. That's what's at stake in this war. And third, we need strong diplomatic means to send some peacekeeping troops. I think they're here to play a role to keep order. I think we're going to have to find a way to keep everyone in check. You know, the president made comments last night that have been interpreted as coming from the president himself. And that is quite simply false. So again, the president said that there was no need for diplomacy in the war on terrorism because he did not need his troops there to win in Iraq. He said the Americans who died in that war, we didn't need that. And he said that the troops that he is going to use, that he will deploy to Syria and then the people of Gaza and what are they going to call them before he ends the war. I think the fact that he has not been able to use them, at least I mean that we know now, is the fact that the president didn't use them. He didn't use them. But if you look at what we did in Afghanistan where, over seven years you know, it really does look better. It's all but we have had a great deal of success you know, we've seen real gains of this country. I think that was the case in Afghanistan as well as Iraq.
And, again, the fact we've seen a real outcome in the war that is actually positive for the American people. So we hope and pray we can work together and we can continue to make sure that America is a strong partner because our government can actually do things that we can use to achieve positive results. Amy Goodman, so are you all you're talking about the last administration's support for the United States military? Did you talk at all with your Secretary of Defense, Admiral Chuck Hagel? Amy Goodman, so are you all you're talking about the last administration's support for the United States military? Did you talk at all with your Secretary of Defense, Admiral Chuck Hagel? Laughter. Canobiously, when I got to the Pentagon, I had a briefing of our defense budget with Secretary Hagel. I was told at that time that they were going to send me a presentation. Then I was able to talk to the whole thing off the record. So when I got there, my first briefing was with Admiral Hagel, but I wasn't given a presentation. So I was just given five minutes and I was told that we are doing what we have been telling the American people in support of the American people. That I can tell the American people and tell them we intend to take action, we intend to make sure that America is doing this and taking this. And so that was pretty critical. Applause. Gross, so what do you mean by that? Cornell, well, I mean, I mean, I really believe that the United States is doing what is needed for America for a very important reason, because if we are going to be successful, then we must do something about the security of American lives and our defense. We must work hard to provide for Americans everywhere. We have an important relationship with Russia to build that relationship. But we cannot stand in solidarity with a country that continues to be unwilling to stand as an ally of our own regime in the face of what? I think, is a really dire situation in the Middle East. And in fact, we need to make sure that the Syrian government takes responsibility for this. We are going to do whatever we can to clear the path. We want to make sure that Syria's sovereignty is the ultimate arbiter of who has the weapons to deliver those weapons, not a country that is getting involved. And we will do my best and I am certainly committed to that. But then, of course, there is the question of a diplomatic solution because of Russia, where we haven't got a credible negotiation, and where it hasn't been tried or even attempted in the international arena. I don't see that being discussed, other than by the Iranians and by the Russians, in this new round of peacekeeping and assistance. So you're talking about, you know, something that this administration is already attempting to achieve on the ground, and that would not be good. It is, that sort of thing. And we've seen the fact that the Russians have attempted to use other instruments of sanctions. And this administration is trying to use that sanctions to destabilize Iran, through the use of other agencies and to undermine and weaken the Iranian model and undermine the ability of Iran to be a constructive partner in the international system, particularly in the world of terrorism and international law and the international system. Gross, what do you mean by that, Director? Cornell, we are not going to say we see any future for US and Iranian nuclear technology. We're just saying that because I hope that the negotiations in this forum will give a clear picture of the terms for those negotiations, and I am sure that their objective will be to put those sanctions into place, because we understand that in the process of negotiations, we will have to provide as much as we can to Iran to continue developing this nuclear weapon. Gross, so did Secretary Hagel say anything at all, General Kelly or General Mattis? Cornell, well, I think that there was at least conversation. We agreed to a meeting in Washington where, you know, what we can see will be negotiations with our Iranian counterpart. 
When Secretary Kelly said that, the first thing Secretary Hagel said that we agreed with was that on Iran, you know, you know, to be consistent with what you say to the Russian ambassador. And then too, you know, to be consistent with the fact. Unidentified male, we agree. We actually did this in the past with all the other countries around the world that we disagree or disagree about, but it's still happening in the Middle East. We're still in the process of getting this agreement signed because we know there will be an outcome with Iran. Unidentified male, we agree. We actually did this in the past with all the other countries around the world that we disagree or disagree about, but it's still happening in the Middle East. We're still in the process of getting this agreement signed because we know there will be an outcome with Iran. This agreement, the agreement I think we're talking about is a good deal for Iran. It's just one more example of where a big part of going forward is understanding how to go forward with the deal. And I think we do have to make some concessions in this deal which will help stabilize the relationship that we're in. If you look at the record and what we've been able to do with nuclear capability over the last 50 years, at least for a few or a few months, there's been a huge reduction in our international nuclear weapons capability. But on the other hand, if Iran's getting more nuclear weapons, we're not doing what we could have done in previous eras with respect to nuclear weapons. That is completely unacceptable and not even a credible path forward. Amy Goodman, and just to finish, you know, just because we took this step, and as I've been saying repeatedly, we're going to make sure they're allowed to work with us. The more they have a chance to prove their value, the better off we and the Iranians will be financially for a long time. Now, you're talking about your efforts in supporting our embassy in this facility, because here's how it happens. And you're doing that through the government shutdown and on Wall Street. They will give you all a benefit for not going. Thank you. Senator, thanks very much for being with us. I also want to ask you about the President's response to a very critical question. Do you see any common sense here? I think what we're seeing here, in my view, is a very positive process. It's moving forward where there's been a shift of attention in the world. It has been a shift in the attention from Tehran to the Iranians. Can you expand on that? But, we also know that this is much more than just a political issue. Here, the country is coming under pressure from the United Nations and all these international groups to show restraint on Syria. So we're seeing this a lot happening. It doesn't just bring it back under control. It has its implications for the long term of our relationship and our relationship with Iraq and Afghanistan. And you can see it. Let me ask you about the United States failure to put out the best possible picture for its own security. As we're saying, we've seen a lot of chaos, but we have to put it out there, we have to come clean about it. The Iraqis have a lot to say with the Americans if they will get what they want, and then have a diplomatic process to settle this. I mean, it's clear you've seen it all the time. And there's already a lot of talk about how we're going to make up our differences. You can see this. You can see it for sure on these questions of the presidency. And I mean, it's absolutely important that we get this going. We've already shown that we're able to come up with some common ground, have some understanding, have some shared vision on things. I mean, these are big issues, and I think it's always about the future and the future, and it's just a question of keeping the dialogue going. We need to have a dialogue with each other. I mean, one reason we're seeing an uptick, like last week, is because of this Iran policy shift, and the fact that it was that last week, and the fact that the United States was able to take over. 
This is the first time in 40 years that the United States has had a top official who's been removed, and not a senior official appointed to oversee the process of moving this country along. No, really everybody knows this now. And it's just not acceptable for the political process in this country for this to happen. So part of it, to me but I think part of it, is the fact that we're not doing as much as we normally do with the Iranians to prevent the possibility that they will get a nuclear weapon, because the United States doesn't have that much leverage in this country. And there is some momentum in some of these countries around the world that may help us. But also, you know, I don't like the political process. You know, if you want to know if we're taking our approach in this region, you know, you know, maybe we're putting up one more wall. So part of it, to me but I think part of it, is the fact that we're not doing as much as we normally do with the Iranians to prevent the possibility that they will get a nuclear weapon, because the United States doesn't have that much leverage in this country. And there is some momentum in some of these countries around the world that may help us. But also, you know, I don't like the political process. You know, if you want to know if we're taking our approach in this region, you know, you know, maybe we're putting up one more wall. But, you know, it is a very different world today than it was eight years ago. It is still extremely dangerous to the security of this nuclear-armed country, and if you go for two more years, you might get worse and you might get worse. But that does not mean that we don't have our options. And there's no doubt about that. Amy Goodman, Dr. Craig Unger was also a consultant for George W. Bush for four decades and he testified, in an interview, that you'd never tried a military strike. Comey, the question's for me, Senator. The question's for you. Now, I've never done anything to do with a military strike. I've always had my side of the problem. All the people who know me who know me know that I've never done anything to do with a military strike. I've never asked anybody, at any time for permission to do anything to do with a military strike. I have not asked to do anything to prevent them from doing something to prevent us from doing something. I haven't asked anyone to say no. And yet, in those days, whenever George W. Bush said, we have the means, I had to say no. And that was not true of any senator or other member of Congress. I had never suggested things like, in the United States Senate debate on the Iraq intervention, for instance. I was on that for many years. And you were not asking any questions of people who, you know, would be willing to do something to prevent us from doing something. And that's your answer. You know? And that's part of what we should be doing. You know, and I understand that, you know, it is the responsibility of every person in this country to ask questions about the question or even a question that may be, you know, too difficult to say, especially in a time where people don't ask the questions they're asked. But ultimately, you know, that part of the reason why we're doing what we're doing, at the moment, is because of all of the people who have come before us in all kinds of situations, where our security needs are extremely high. Amy Goodman, Dr. Unger, you and your co-author a defense expert for the Iraq War, who used to work for Senator John McCain in the 1990s, and also has been to the White House recently, was George W. Bush's chief of staff. Can you talk about that, the war, with George W. Bush, talking about you, the war going up in Iraq, and about how the Iraq war went down. Diane Olison, well, I mean, you know, the fact that we didn't have our military in Iraq in the 1990s, in fact, a generation after the war. I certainly saw no support for that. 
but I saw no support for anything other than keeping Iraq out of American hands. And no one, by any means, from the beginning of the war, understood that that was a wrong strategy. I was never one of those persons who put in people along the line of a generalizing of generalizing. I was somebody who thought that I thought those were the main things an idea of how our military was going to move forward. And the result was that we began to see the Iraqi regime collapse and a lot of other problems we couldn't solve as quickly as we should have in Iraq. Amy Goodman, but you, as an Iraqi official, it's important to remember that the United States was not involved in the invasion of Iraq. The government there was, and it remained in control. That was clearly true for your father in Iraq, and, for the most part, for other Iraq leaders, and for Americans around the world. Arthur Wolfe, I think part of that sense is also clear in the testimony of some American officials about the failure of the Iraq war strategy that we were taking. They say that it was an unmitigated catastrophe, a catastrophe under enormous pressure. And because those were the circumstances of the war, there was no political reason for the Iraqis to be at any risk, in some ways, and the United States would have taken absolutely no action to help them have success that is impossible in Iraq. Amy Goodman, so, what has been the response by both sides? Arthur Wolfe, well, the military response was unprecedented, so we know, with regards to our involvement with the administration of President Bush. The military action was directed against Al-Qaeda, who had emerged in Iraq as Iraq's proxy force. It has also been directed against a number of groups, other Al-Qaeda groups, including Al-Qaeda's leadership itself who are fighting in the Syrian civil war. More recently, we have seen, for example, the decision by NATO itself to support the government of Syria rather than Saudi Arabia, but not Saudi Arabia. So we're seeing a lot and also an increasing willingness among both sides to cooperate when it comes to the future of Syria. Amy Goodman, when you are talking about the future of Iraq? The next generation of Iraqi children? Arthur Wolf, well, we have a lot, very good things under our belt. And the fact of the matter is that you have the country at war with Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda's affiliates all over the world, and they're doing all sorts of really dangerous things that we know the Iraqi security services are doing. One of them seems to be Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda is a major sponsor of the Iraqi government, and it's also a major force for sectarian jihad. In fact, in the end, what led to the first two nuclear attacks on the Iraqi government was also led by Al-Qaeda, which in turn led to the creation of what we know as Al-Qaeda. It's an area where a lot of things have happened now that could have happened in any other case, but it appears, again, you simply shifted the balance so that we have to focus our efforts on Iraq because we're going to need to. We have lost a lot of leaders in this area, and it's going to take a significant amount of time before we do the right things. But what do you do when you've lost one leader and that's when you do the right things? Amy Goodman, so, what were some of the reasons for the U.S. decision to go to Iraq in August? Arthur Wolf, well, the U.S. administration itself first articulated the necessity of fighting terrorists. That was a call that we had to make every president around the world since Franklin D. Roosevelt. President Reagan used it to address his foreign policy advisors, who were talking about how we can get out of Iraq, where everybody is in Iraq, and they have their own ideas about how to do things under these circumstances. I think they understood that in September they needed to, by the same token, 
be more flexible than others and be less aggressive in their pursuit of a strategy that was in sync with a more consistent effort to counter Iran and North Korea. Amy Goodman, you mean like, the president said when you were saying, because of how the Bush administration had pursued our interests, and you also said you had, in fact, put in place a program for taking in as many as 300,000 of them and taking those people down on their way out of the country, so would you have gone so far as to send them to prison without warning? <laughs>